Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Mary Jo Bang. Mary Jo, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers. Thank you, T. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Um, it's April 16th, 2009, and uh, our conversation is pre-recorded. Um, Mary Jo is here in town um, visiting the University of Michigan. Uh, you're going to be giving a, a reading at the at the new uh, Helmet uh, Auditorium in the university's uh, art museum new and improved uh uma i'm excited <laughs> yeah it'll be it'll be great to um well i'm sure everyone's excited to have you here actually thanks some flurry of emails so um so welcome um mary joe's latest book is is elegy um, this is with gray wolf press uh and just as a way for us to start i'm going to read the short bio in the back of the book Mary Jo Bang is the author of four previous books of poetry, including Louise in Love and The Eye Like a Strange Balloon. She lives in St. Louis, Missouri, where she is a professor of English and director, well, the former director of the creative writing program at Washington University. It's still very much involved with that because Mary Jo just got a call right before <laughs> we started taping. So, um, about students. Um, well, Mary Jo, now that um, let's let's talk a little bit more about your your biography, like fill in some things like I'll start with the um, born born in 1946 in Waynesville, Missouri and grew up in Ferguson. Um, You've done your research, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me if any of it's wrong. <laughs> some, sometimes you think things are right online and then it's completely <laughs> no one's edited it or something. Right. Um, but and so, and now you've returned to Missouri. But there's been so many things that have um, happened uh, between that moment and this moment. Um, you've been lived so many places uh, and and done so many jobs. Some of them physician's assistant, um, a photographer. Uh, what was what was your genesis? Like, is it possible to say a moment when you thought you know I could be a writer? Did you have one of those moments and then? And then you had these other jobs and marriage and, you know. Right. Yes. In fact, that's exactly what happened. Um, every day was that moment, though, was, um, you know, if I can just find some time, I'm going to become a writer. And there were all, always these um, pressing obligations, and particularly because I had a child very young and um, then was divorced, so I was a single mother. And um, then I went back to school and I studied sociology at Northwestern University, and then I got a master's degree, and that was... Um, also at Northwestern. That's right, yes. in sociology. And that was... Um, I had thought that I would teach sociology, and that wasn't an uh, unrealistic expectation. Um, people did teach with master's degrees back then. Um, this was in the early 70s. But um, what had happened was that people had stayed out of... Um, the Vietnam War by continuing to be in school, and so and they would be um, they would gravitate to um, the social sciences, and and so that's why you actually chose sociology. Then some of this I, interest in the ferment of that time. Exactly, I was very engaged with that, and so um, 
So there were very few teaching jobs because you had this glut of PhDs who were teaching even in community colleges. And so um, I instead decided to become involved in other ways, and I moved to Philadelphia and worked with a group of Quakers doing um, anti-war work and social organizing, community organizing. And then um, as the the war and, and ended, so that was you and your, your son moved there, that's, the two that's of exactly you. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And then I um, I heard about this position um, of physician assistant, and it was very um, interesting to me because I had gone to work for a doctor as a secretary, and this was in a teaching hospital um, associated, children's hospital associated with the University of Pennsylvania. And I was fascinated by medicine, and she was quite a natural teacher. So I would ask her even how to spell a word, and she would say, well, you know what, um, this is the word, and this is what the disease is about, and I'm about to go down to the lab and look at slides. Would you like to come? And she was a hematologist. And so I, I just became um, really fascinated by medicine. Isn't that strange that there was that, because of that opportunity, exactly. that there was something that then that was opened to you? Exactly. And so I began to study, um, taking Saturday classes in um, biochem and things like that. And um, so really relaxing, basically, right? <laughs> exactly. On a Saturday. <laughs> I've always been a slacker. You can see that. Um, and so I ended up getting accepted at St. Louis University in St. Louis in their physician assistant training program. And um, went and to also, school there. Was, would it also give you some uh, like level of independence somehow too? Like the idea of being a physician's assistant with work, like a stability, would that have been part of it, or was it purely the 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 anatomy or the medicine or the hemoglobin that attracted you? No, I think it was both. I thought, well, with the degree, there you know there are limited kinds of things that I could do, particularly in sociology. But with a skill, you could go any place in the country. And I, at the time, I didn't realize what a, um, a pioneering role that was. And um, now it's much more common. But, what, what do you mean by that? Well, there, there weren't that many jobs. Um, and so you really weren't, you, you didn't have the same kind of flexibility that the if mobility? you had been a, a, a nurse I see. or a you know, respiratory therapist or something like that. Um, you had to find a physician who wanted to incorporate a physician assistant in their practice, basically. Uh, or a hospital that utilized them, but there weren't that many hospitals except the teaching hospitals that were creating these um, these positions, you know, the roles. So, um, so I did that, and along the way, I I remarried and I had another child then, a stepson, and all the time I was thinking, someday I'm going to be a writer. And then... Um, every day. Every day. No. I mean, some days you're so busy you don't think at all. Um, you know, you're working, you have your career. And it was a satisfying career. I I was in gynecology and I had um, and a lot of patients who um, had great loyalty to me. And um, the physicians I worked with were very appreciative and so gave me a, a very expanded role. I was teaching medical residents uh, who would rotate through with me because um, they didn't want to learn obstetrics. They wanted to learn office gynecology. So I was the person to do that with. So... Um, so you were an expert. So you've gathered these different areas in your life. You... And this is starting from somewhere where you said in your, your home, at least from my background reading on you, Mary Jo, it's like you, you grew up in a, a home where maybe there weren't books lying around. Like it wasn't as if 
so this is kind of an interesting trajectory, which you take for granted maybe at this point. <laughs> you know, I don't think I ever do. I think I continue to be um, curious about how I would become this person who was so immersed in books and art and uh, when there was so little of that in my childhood, my um, and knowledge gathering because yes. you went to more yes. you know sociology like the the how minds are you know and then medicine right it's wonderful well I think it has something to do with this idea of mastery that um, you know they talk about in psychology and and I think that there was an anxiety on my part that um, you had to really understand something to do it well. And um, my mother used to say, I, I have a sister who's three years older, and my mother would always say, and my, and my sister got very good grades, and I did too, but my mother would tell people it, within my hearing, Norma gets grades because she's smart, Mary Jo gets good grades because she works hard. And so I had inherited this idea that I had to work hard you have because to be a that was the hard only right. way that obviously that I was <laughs> excelling. It's interesting that then you've had people saying no to you a lot and yet you you prove them wrong. Yes. Yes. Well, there is that, that kind of rebellious spirit that probably moves me forward sometimes. And good for poems. I guess. Yeah. Oh, so let's see. So that rebellious spirit then, so that also took you to, you were at the, it seems like wherever you've gone, like you landed in London because your your husband uh, was transferred there at the time. And, right. and so then you created your own opportunity. You were thinking, you, you had the image in mind and photography. Can, can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, what happened was, um, you know, while that record about someday I'll be a writer was mm. playing, um, I was living in Evanston, Illinois and with my family then and um, there was a um, flyer that came in the mail one day announcing that Northwestern was going to have some special courses for women that they were going to offer at night. One was going to be on football so that you could learn about football. <laughs> Converse with your partner. <laughs> That's exactly the idea of it. That's how they advertised it. Um, you too can enjoy by sitting you know, with your husband or boyfriend, whatever, um, and talk about football. Another one was, I, I don't remember, maybe some kind of history class, a much more a traditional academic class. And then there was going to be a course on writing. And I thought, this is it. Whenever I go to school, I, I'm an overachiever. I do all the assignments. I will write something, and then I'll know whether this has all been a myth. This desire that's of right. yours. Yes. That's right. So um, I took that course, and I was writing fiction at that time. And uh, after the course ended, a number of the women in the course wanted to continue. And we approached the teacher, but she said that she hadn't been invited to teach the class again yet, but that she sometimes taught in her home, and we could take a class with her there. And so we did. And so we did another semester's worth. And at that point, she said that uh, she had basically taught us everything that she knew, but that we seemed to work well together. And so that why didn't we think about meeting just informally as, as a, group. a group? Yeah, and we did for a number of years. And during that time, I had an occasion to go to um, France, and I'd never been out of this country. And I bought a little Instamatic camera to take some photos, uh, snapshots, but I had never used a camera before. And th I think this goes back to this idea of mastery, because growing up in a um, family where you didn't have things like cameras, 
every every time I encounter something new like that, I have to learn about it. Whereas other people seem to be born knowing how to use a camera, but I had to learn. So um, they showed me at the camera shop, but once I got to France, I couldn't remember how to get the film out of the back. So I kept opening up the back of the camera and of course exposing the the undeveloped film. So when I got my That's um, an interesting metaphor. (laughs) That's right. So when I got my pictures back, I thought, um, these aren't mine. They've made a mistake. You know what, Mary Jo, let's pause right there. If you can remember to pick up, they've made a mistake. That's right. <laughs> um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today, Mary Jo Bang. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back. Well, it ain't no use sit and wonder why, baby. Even you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby It'll never do somehow When your rooster crows at the break of dawn Look out your window and I'll be gone You're the reason I'm traveling on But don't think twice, it's all right And it ain't no use in the turning on your light, babe The light I never knowed And it ain't no use in turning on your light, babe I'm on the dark side of the road But I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind and stay But we never did too much talking anyway Don't think twice, it's all right So it ain't no use in calling out my name, yeah Welcome back, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel and today, Mary Jo Bang. Um, It's always always hard to cut Bob Dylan off, too. It is indeed. (laughs) But we must. Um, And thanks to Alex Bellhodge for engineering today and to Corey, too, um, sitting in. Thanks, Captains. Um, All right. So, Mary Jo... Um, we, I so rudely cut you off there. <laughs> so you, so there was a mis, like the mistake of the exposure with the cameras. That's what we were talking about. Your first, that's right. Uh, this photography. is photography. Uh, will lead to a degree in photography, a job <laughs> in photography. But this, the the moment was that I had tried to take these pictures and failed miserably. And when I went to the drugstore and picked them up, I thought they had made a mistake and given me someone else's photographs because I didn't recognize. What these. did they even look like? They were like just sheer whiteness with no. some. Edges no, no, or no. What? I mean, only the edges of the the roll w- would be exposed. And at some point I thought, I think I'm supposed to be in the dark when I do this. And so I would go in the bathroom in the hotel and try to make it as dark <laughs> as possible. So some some were reasonably um, exposed, but it, the colors were, were faded. The 
whatever I thought I saw, um, didn't I didn't recognize it. It was it was strange. That is that's so interesting. But then finally, I was leafing through and saw one where it was my husband, and then another with me, <laughs> and so it, it was, was like, your role exactly. There was no more disputing about it. You're like I can't get my money back now. <laughs> and those perfect photos no longer exist. You know, my idea of the photos I thought I was taking. But what I did was then I enrolled in a class to learn photography and I enrolled in a class to learn French because I was going to go back and do it right. And um, I had I had wanted to take black and white photographs and that's in fact what I began to do. And I began to um, then set aside the idea of being a writer or of writing, not even being a writer. But um, And then when my husband got transferred to um, London... What age were you then, just so we have like a chronology, Mary um, Jo, if you don't mind? Yeah, I think I'm 40 at this moment. Okay. And um, I had begun taking some courses at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago in photography. So when I got to London, I began to look around for a dark room, thinking I could work on my own. But that proved to be impossible. So I found a degree program where they would accept me as a, a third-year student in a four-year program. And in two years, I could do a BA in photography. And um, fortunately, that program was You must very... be very convincing. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I had a master's in sociology, and I had a portfolio of now decent work because of the work I'd done at the Art Institute. So um, so they they felt like I would fit in fine, and, um, and I think I did. And... Um, but I began to, that, that program was very interested in the relationship of image and text and semiotics and issues like that. And so I began to write things and then make photographs that played off of those writings. And so, um, you know, I, I was now on a parallel track of writing and making photographs. And I began to publish some of those photographs, those um poems in small journals in England. And then uh, when I came back, I... Without the images then, without the photographs? That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And um, then when I came back to this country, I I didn't want to go back to medicine because I'd had three years. I hadn't been able to practice in London. They didn't have anything comparable. So I wanted to do something that um, was more creative, but I didn't think that I could make a living writing. And so I decided to try to become a photographer with the idea that maybe I could just work part time doing that and have time to write. But of course, starting any business is all consuming and it took up a lot of time. And I found I didn't enjoy commercial photography at all. Well, because you're, to you're told really what to... That's exactly right. You have very little um, control over the final product and, um, and to what use your images are going to be um, put. So I, um, I saw that they were advertising for people to teach creative writing to adults. And I thought, well, perhaps I could do that. I don't have any degrees in uh, English or creative writing, but perhaps I could teach adults. And it turned out that I did, and I loved it. And so at some point, and I wasn't enjoying the photography, and so I decided I needed to go and get an MFA in poetry, which I to did. To expand on then the, the teaching as like a stability of career? Exactly. Or? And at the time, I naively wasn't thinking that I needed that for my own work, but I did. 
And um, how so? Well, I think my received idea of what a poem was was far too narrow. Um, and when I went to Columbia, I was introduced to so many other kinds of aesthetics and so much poetry. And I began to think, oh, you mean that can be a poem? You know, Gertrude Stein. Oh, my goodness, that's a poem. (laughs) That tender button. Exactly. (laughs) And um, I got more and more excited about this issue of how do you now, after there's been so much poetry written and and so many ways in which things have been said. How does someone make a poem now? So, you know, we've got Whitman, we've got Dickinson, we've got Gerard Manley Hopkins, we've got Stein, we've got Lynn Higinian, you know, we've got all the, the living poets and all the dead poets and Eliot and Pound. Okay, and now how are you going to make a poem? And that's a, a big challenge. And it's that idea of, okay, how are you going to make a poem now has driven my work um, from that moment forward and and until today and tomorrow. And there's always that sense. So you take that, so you drive that rather than being quieted by that. Yes, that's right. I I find permission um, in the fact that people have done it so differently and that I too might be able to come up with something that's inimitably mine. And so, and and so when you when you went to the MFA program, um, it was more, you said, like for the teaching, but then you found that it opened right. into this completely other world. And, and when was that in your life, Mary Jo? Um, I went to Columbia in 1993, and I was 48 um, at that time. And um, I was very fortunate. It was a very talented group of people there at that moment. Um, people like Timothy Donnelly and um, Brenda Shaughnessy was a year after us. Um, Mark Wunderlich was a year ahead of us. Um, Monica De La Torre was in our class. So these people are all in your acknowledgments. They, they are because we've remained friends and we all became writers uh, together and we continued to be interested in in each other's work and in in poetry, you know, some people do. It's like a confirmation class or something. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. We're a confirmation class. We confirm each other. And, and so, and so, these are people. This is your community that you still um, do. Do you send them po- poems and they they you and and. Um, rarely, but occasionally, um, we exchange work. Um, I think that there is a point, at least for me, there has become a point when I have such strict standards for my own work that I don't need someone else to be satisfied by it. I have to be satisfied by it. And once I am, that's that. Um, now, that's not to say that someone can't point out um, a phrase or a word or a suggestion for a change. Um, I'm I'm eager and open for those things, but I think that at some point writers stop doing that for each other because they're convinced by the work, they know what you're up to, they accept your project, and they're interested to see what you do with it. And so it's not a question of correcting something um, that seems to not have been realized, but just standing back and being interested in to see what someone's going Delving to do next. Into yeah. it. And so are, is that something with regarding teaching that you're able to somehow give to your your students in St. Louis? Or is that something that just comes with time? Like how that that capacity to be either 
to know the work or to be stubborn about what you believe in it. So without even considering that there would be, you know. Yes, I, I, um, what I do with the students, I do a couple of things when I look at student work. One is I track my own response to it. And so I'm able to then report back to them. Um, you know, while I was reading, I found my attention wandering here, or I began arguing with this phrase that, um, you know, a phrase that includes a word like always. Um, well, you know, the dead always say such and such. It's like, no, not always. And, right, right. and so you should know that, that that's the, the um, response and that's being you triggered. You want to trigger the argument. Exactly. But then, you know, if they say, yeah, I want to trigger the argument, then I have to say, well, okay, you, you did it. You know? <laughs> Mission Good accomplished. For you. <laughs> that's right. So, and I do try to um, be respectful in the idea that there's a reason for these things to be here. Now, I can make suggestions. You want that here, but maybe it's better when it comes up and it's the title and the veil through which the whole rest of the poem is read. Or maybe that line that I'm having trouble with um, could be at the end of the poem and at that moment I might be more ready to accept that generalization because of all these other um, statements that have been made and I know exactly what it is that you're trying to say there. So um, I'm mainly trying to to teach them to remain fluid about their own work and see where things um, have the best effect and um, and even things that are taken out afterwards, I say, well, you know, you've taken out these three lines. What can you do with them? Maybe those are the first lines of the new poem. Or maybe, you know, one of those now comes up and, and becomes the title of this poem or um, are these an thing, ending for are, another poem. Are these things legacies of, of what you learned when you were entered into these programs, do you think, Mary Jo? Or are these things that have actually um, just grown out of your own your own work, like how you work and what you would respond to or right. think about a poem? I think uh, there are a number of um, elements. One is um, Lucy Brock Broido was my teacher at Columbia, and she was an excellent teacher. And I think she had this sense about the poem being fluid, and I think that I inherited that from her. And um, I think the other thing is that for 10 years I was a poetry editor at... Boston um, Review. Exactly. Okay. And that I think that... Um, that's a wonderful experience to learn uh, not just about contemporary poetry but about your own practice because you see how easily fatigue sets in uh, when an editor is reading. You know, I would read the slush and we didn't have any first readers so I read everything and Timothy and I read all, everything and then at some point I began being the first reader of the slush because he was doing all the reviews and then I would call out things and then together we would look at those things so I'd be looking at maybe 150 um, submissions at one sitting and each of those submissions would be five poems long and so you know and and we had we only published five times a year and only a couple of poems and so i really was not wanting to find a poem <laughs> not, <laughs> not wanting to find too many poems right. and so the poems that i would set aside had to be really good not just here and there but throughout that ending had to be so convincing the beginning had to be so alluring so seductive the title had to be just right and so i began to hold my own poems up to that same standard, I, I hoped, and say, well, would I, as an editor, 
want to read a poem called, you know, Mud Puddle. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe I'd want something with a little more complexity. A little more pizzazz. Exactly. <laughs> On the other hand, Mud Puddle might be the best poem, a title for, for another poem. But the issue was, you know, okay, the title has to be right. The first line has to be right. Every word has to be right. If I find my interest in my own poem lagging, then the, the editor surely will as well. The ending has to be right. Everything has to be right. Mary throughout. Jo, you're exacting. Yes. We're, we're going to take a short break okay. and we'll be back with poet Mary Jo Bang. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Back in a moment. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Mary Jo Bang is here in the studio. Um, okay, so we've got to get to, to one of these poems, because otherwise I can see very easily the whole hour going <laughs> with me just chatting away. Um, so so the, the book you're holding right now, Mary Jo, is The, the Eye Like a Strange Balloon. And um, this this is your was it the third collection that came out, is it? Because we've got Apology for Want was first, and then Louise and Love, and then the Swans came out together. Okay, so fourth. My math, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's even one hand, right? Not even an abacus. Okay. Um, and we thought, like, well, well, you're going to be reading at the, at the art museum. And so maybe can you give us a little introduction before you read the poem? Mary Jo, would you mind? Um, I can. This... Um this, this is a project. Right? It was a project. It's called The I Like a Strange Balloon, which is um, a title of a charcoal sketch by Odilon Redon. And I picked the um, the title of the 
book before I even began it because I wanted to um, have that sense. All of these poems are based on artworks. I've expanded that um, the traditional ekphrastic poem is based on a painting, but because art contains so many other kinds of um, expression today, film and installation and video art, um, I've expanded that as well so that um, some of their there's a David Lynch poem, for instance, of Mulholland Drive. Oh. And um, the poem I'm about to read is called Alice in Wonderland, and it's inspired by a painting by a contemporary German painter named Sigmar Polka. And um, it's a, a, a large-scale painting on fabric. Half of the fabric is black with white polka dots. The other half of the fabric, so that there's a seam down the center, the other half is a pattern where a little boy is kicking um, a soccer ball. And um, all, in all of these cases, I just use the artwork as a... Um, a kind of trigger so that some have more debt to the original than others. In this one, the center of these two, um, this this dual fabric um, canvas has been gessoed or white um, painted on it. And then there's a line drawing um, of Alice talking to the caterpillar who's sitting on the mushroom smoking a hookah. <laughs> okay, so Alice in Wonderland. Such a fall. Watch fob and waistcoat, how late the mistake is made, how long the clamoring lasts. Who are you, bending against a blade of green grass? Smoke fills the caterpillar, smoke floats over the polka dot snow. Have you really changed, do you think? This is the best part of the dark edge of down, down, down she fell. This is the best part of the edge where one is not one self. Don't I know it, Alice says, blinking her eyes once, twice. She took down a jar from one of the shelves as she passed it. It was labeled orange marmalade. The game was changing. There are games where one never wavers. There are games where one follows a dot-by-dot dot disturbance. There's falling and about to fall and ground giving way. There's the beautiful act of turning to buy two and getting a free beach bag, perfect for picnics or toting and such, a flavorful favor to take on a trip to a mountain where chocolate is eaten on weekends and during the week it's placed on your pillow right next to your head which is swimming in visions. She could almost most envision it, a pool with a placid surface, mist shrouding a peak that poked through at the top, to speak of impossible heights. But no, the peak was a spike on the cephalogram, and she was dreaming again in a sleep clinic bed. Father was petting her forehead. Mother was stirring a soup. She'd be ever more reckless if never she woke. Now that was not said right. Some of the words had got altered. A row of button mums hedged the walkway. She stopped to enter this datum in her write-as-rain notebook. She knew what the button mums meant. Another fall. Dying must happen quite often, said Alice. Thank you, Mary Jo. Um, 
so that I, I had to lean away from the mic because there were so many moments where it was just the, the, the seemed like they were humorous. Uh, it just it was rumoring there. But then the end is like. <laughs> um, and I could actually listen. You're, you're such a lovely reader. I could listen to you all day. So it's a good thing that I've already decided we're going to converse. Otherwise, I just ask you to keep going. Well, thank you. Um, thank you. I think the role of humor in poetry is is um, underestimated. I think that today we have such a um, a kind of suspicion of the over earnest. We feel like we're being manipulated. We feel like, oh, we've seen that story. We see it on the front page every day, the sad, sad story. So how does one get sadness and gravity? And um, how does one talk about the issues which are part of the human condition and which never change? And I think that humor is a way to do that. Uh, humor is a way to show the absurdity of the world and uh, just in the same way that Lewis Carroll does. And I think that's why Alice is such a useful figure um, for me as a poet. And she comes back in um, a lot of different forms in, in books and poems I, I write. It's, it's interesting that you say that humor is something that, that allows for um, almost like a, a, a re-scene of some of the serious, too. Um, because I, I think that's very true. And, but I also think it's, it's funny because you were saying people can dismiss earnestness. But I, I would also say that sometimes um, people are impatient if they think, especially coming sometimes in with, with poems, they almost think that might be too much artifice instead of giving that. I don't know. What do you think about that? Or is that... No, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that um, a lot of people think, well, I don't get it if, if it's too um, disjunctive in its humor. Um, and uh, there's a suspicion of that as well. It's like you're not really talking about anything. You're just having fun. Um, but in fact, that sometimes we have to go, um, we have to go around a subject and we have to circle it in all kinds of different ways in order to allow it to be put on stage. Because if it's if it comes too easily, then it seems pat, and um, it doesn't seem um, that the knowledge and the wisdom is earned or, or revelatory. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Is it the same with grief then? When you're you're finding a way to talk about grief, grief, you know. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I wrote this book, Elegy, um, after my son's death, and um, those poems are all about grief. I think that that I came at that straightforwardly, and I think that that book is um, different from anything I've ever read, written. And um, in some ways, it may not read differently, but the process was different. And I think that for, for me in that book, there was a fear of being too straightforward so that it would just sound like um, a journal entry. And so I insisted to myself that I spend the same kind of attention writing those poems that I would any poem, that I would pay attention, for instance, to the rhetorical surface. I would pay attention to image. I would pay attention to syntax. And in fact, those kinds of concerns were soothing because it meant I could get out of the, that state of grief for a little while, at least while I was thinking instead of just feeling. And, um, and so I began also 
after I began to realize that, to see why other people had written elegies and why this is such a um, time-honored tradition um, and, and kind of the uses of it. And there's multiple uses. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one, you honor, you honor the grief, and that says that this person was important because um, they've their absence, their loss, um, has has brought you to this. Has it, made these poems necessary. Exactly, and and it also makes them continue to stay in the world because. Um, the audience for the elegy is basically the one who's gone. And as long as you're continuing that conversation, that person isn't gone entirely. They, they're conjured up to be the audience. And there's something very soothing about that because you, you continue that life with them. Um, I think there's this idea of being distracted from, um, from a state that's excruciating in its pain. Um, so there, there are all of those many things. Well, because I think that connects to even having pain um, as something that you hold on to because it's something that that person has given you or it's a part of that person in some way. But this seems like a um, not not to be new age, but like like a healthier like a, a way of not making the pain what you're holding on to because that's a p- part of the person, but rather the elegy itself, like the conversation and and the being in their presence in some way with the work. Well, in this case, and and usually when somebody loses something, uh, somebody very important to them, you've been talking to them for a long time. And how do you stop suddenly talking to them? You you just can't. Um, and so, how are you going to talk? Well, you're going to have That's it to have that of loss. Exactly. That keeps That's right. And you're going to talk to them um, in your own head, of course. But if you're a poet. That's how you talk to the world, and so that it becomes um, the paper becomes a kind of uh, radio station, uh, since we're in one where you can talk, and um, the other, the idea of the other at least can hear you. the The person who used to listen uh, is imagined to be still listening. Um, well, let's see. Well, let's you know, let's take a short break, Mary Jo, and then when we come back, would you mind reading? one of the poems from Elegy, which is which is the latest collection from Grey Wolf Press. You also, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you also have another book that's coming out maybe this year, The Bride of E. That's right. Um, published by Grey Wolf as well. Mm-hmm. So that's soon. Can people look for that one to come out later in the year? Or Yes, September 29th, I think, is the publication date. Oh, okay. So and maybe we'll talk again. <laughs> great. And I'll be reading from that work tonight. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, and that's The Bride of E. Okay, so we'll take a short break. You're listening to Living in Writers. Today, Mary Jo Bang will be back.
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Mary Jo Bang. Um, and Mary Jo, you've, you've picked out um, uh, one of the poems from Elegy. I have. Um, I'm going to read a poem called Beneath the Din. Beneath the din of voices bouncing off hard walls and window wall and tile surface on which feet two per person rest and chair legs four per chair rest there's breath talk is to be human again silence is an escape page as white as a tablet of phenobarbital there is no waking up from death that's the pity the dead leave what could be next unfinished you left nothing left to say and yet there is this incomplete labyrinth of finished thought this wash of days over energy's uneven rock this vault doors hollow closing crash behind which i say stop to the accidental uncle to the twisted wrist eyes close to the insomnia hour then tomorrow merges with the present and becomes the possibility of the vacuumed after where a snake makes its way back across a game table sea of emerald green leaves the guest clouds circle and soak up the night and all the ghosts go blank thank you mary jo um so one of the the images that are or actually the, the i think for me, when, when reading Elegy, the, the predominant color that goes through it is green. And I, I wondered if that was at all anything uh, when you were thinking about the poems as, like when you said you were thinking about the structure and syntax and, and looking at it in that way, was green something that you were aware of as well that was threading its way th through the entire collection? or I wasn't aware of that. I do... Um I mean, the, the green snake probably doesn't fit into what I might say about other green. Green is the color of hope. Um, and so probably that, I think there's, um, there may be a poem in there where she says um, that someone told her that green is on the stem of every flower or something. Um, and that's, that's a very hopeful sign. So I think that, um, that I, I would... Is green is used in, in so many different ways. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. But it's interesting when people point out things like this. Um, in my first book, Apology for Want, which was written a long time ago, somebody read the manuscript and said, what's all this red doing in, the, <laughs> in all these poems? And I hadn't been aware of it at all. And, um, and so I went back through to see what all this red was and, and tried to figure out what does it mean and ended up... Um, writing um, a poem called What is Red? Because, um, you know, once somebody presented me with that, there was this kind of self-interrogation. Well, what does it mean? And um, I think that, that that happens for poets. I think that there are these words that keep coming to mind. And unless somebody um, makes us notice it, we don't even know that we're doing it. And I, I did a review once of um, a book where there was a lot of blue and silver in it. And so I asked the poet when I met her what all that blue was. And she said, lack of rigor. 
<laughs> as if she hadn't noticed it. Right. Um, and so, in fact, I think that maybe the green is a lack of rigor. But no, I, no, not in this case. I think it's it's hinged more with this the idea, idea of hope. hope. Yeah, I really do think so. But then it's like if we have the book in front of us here, of course, at the station, like there's green on the cover, and then and the and then the painting that was chosen for the cover is firing um, the neurons by Michael. This is your That's son's right. one of his paintings. That's right? correct. And and which there's also a lot of green in yes. that as well. Yes, yes, it's but true. I don't know. If, well, I'll get away from hammering on about green. <laughs> it's just my favorite color. <laughs> um, well, it's on the stem of every flower. <laughs> it is. Well, thank you. Thank you for reading that poem, Mary Jo. Um, I guess in our closing moments together, like I, I wanted to, this is, which is, I'm going to put a challenge to you here. Okay. <laughs> um, the In poetry, is one of the things about poems that you love, because you said you started off writing fiction. Okay, and so there was something that maybe, there's something about poems that that you can inhabit that's very different from the fiction. And, and, and I was wondering, is it is it the ambiguity that poems give you, or, or can you t- speak to that at all? Well, it's an interesting question you've asked. Um, I think that there are several things that come to my mind. One is sound. And um, poetry allows you to foreground the music of language much more. And I'm drawn to um, poets who who use sound, Hopkins, for instance. And um, even when I was, um, I had a fellowship one year to uh, live in um, was it Princeton. Princeton? Oh. Exactly, the Hotter Fellowship. You didn't have to teach. You you got a year's salary for just living in Princeton. But I needed, I felt like I needed some um, a structure to my days. And so I sat in on a class on uh, the late Romantic poets. And at that time, I was beginning to read a lot of language poets and uh, people who were calling into question the high poetry poetical um, nature of of the lyric and saying we, we couldn't write like that anymore. It, it somehow um, had exhausted itself. Antiquated. But, yeah. But here I was um, reading Keats and loving it. And I, and I began to think to myself, so what is it I love? And I thought, one, it's the music. And two, it's these large themes. The, the traditional lyric themes are love, death, changing of seasons, memory, truth. Um, and, and I'm a sucker for Which that. Which none of us can escape. <laughs> exactly. That, that defines our existence. And so I thought, um, okay, so I, I am a lyric poet. I can see that because I love music and because I, I love a particular kind of music, uh, one that draws attention to itself. I love artifice. That doesn't necessarily define the lyric. Um, and, and I also love this idea of dealing with these themes, but I can see that you have to really make it contemporary and you have to make it in yours. And so how am I going to do that? And um, those thoughts and those concerns led to a, a book called Louise in Love, which is a very musical um, poem that takes these um characters and so they're persona poems which is a conceit um but what i've attempted to do there is to deal again sometimes with humor as a a deflection um but those large themes of truth and beauty and uh love and so connection yeah yeah exactly so um so i think that those things draw me to poetry now i find that with fiction 
I didn't have enough ideas about what kind of fiction could be written when I first started. And um, my idea of fiction was realistic fiction. And I found that I couldn't do enough to um, add something other than the mundane. And it bored me. And now I think that if I had... Um, and I have tried to write fiction, um, and it's turned out to be a verse novel. Amnesia. That's right. That's right. Um, and it's a verse novel, and it's very musical, and it's very um, poetic in in all ways. So that was my kind of a way to exercise um, the impulse to write fiction, to tell a story, to have a character, to make things happen. Um, but I couldn't let go of the poetic and the poetical. So, Because um, it gives you a different kind of freedom, doesn't it, to move? Freedom and play. For me, writing is play. Um, I love crossword puzzles. I love games. And I think that there is a game, how to put words together to have a certain effect, how to decide what effect you want, and then how to get it. And um, you can try so many different manipulations of language to do that, and manipulations of sound and of the line and all the different things that are in the poet's toolbox. And there aren't that many, but by doing it all differently and arranging it, and whether it's you know, the, the difference between writing a poem with very short lines or a poem with very long lines, what happens is a whole different effect. The long line, someone like Whitman, you get this kind of oracular effect. In um, Allen Ginsberg's hands, the long line in a poem like Howl becomes uh, a rant. So, you know, these Cumulative. things. Yes, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly, unrelenting. Um, the short line it has a totally different effect. Um, when you were when you were saying speaking about the the, the arranging things, I think somebody who had um, written something for your book, uh, Mary Jo, had said aporia. Use that that word. So the um, from the ancient Greek, which I didn't know, so I looked it up. And so it's a philosophical puzzle or state of puzzlement, and in rhetoric, a rhetorically useful expression of doubt. Um, and so that seemed to kind of that almost seemed to be what you were talking about then in a way. Uh, was that something you were conscious of when that when that um, God, I wish I could remember it's which person it Wayne was. Kestenbaum. Yes. 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 Well, <laughs> Sorry, and I think, Wayne. Right. I, I think he's talking about um, that from the point of view of content. Um, but I always like content and form to somehow be have an intimate relationship. So I think that, that seems yes, more lasting. Exactly, and and more convincing. Um, so so that the the form here, that rhetorical surface, um, the kind of fluidity of the pronoun, so that it's sometimes she, sometimes I, all of that is an attempt to. Um, to recognize this kind of shifting, constant shifting that goes on in a state of grief and a, a kind of walking outside and looking at it as if it is a she and not an I, but it, sometimes you can't escape the self and so you are the I and, and there's you know, no getting matter, around it. No matter how alienated or whatever exactly. you feel from that I. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, so that is a way... Um, so of talking about um, deep things that would be, or difficult things, right, would be this way. I mean, I feel like that's what we've been talking about this whole hour in some way, when you were even talking about um, humor or talking around things in order to get to what is the honest part of it, the, 
the she and the I being the same but different? Well, I always talk to my students and myself um, with this phrase, to get away with something. How do you get away with talking about death, for instance? How do you get away with... Or writing a love poem. Exactly. And how do you get away with writing a poem to your grandmother? Because how can you even put grandmother in the poem without changing it? And the word with tapestry, maybe. Exactly. So so I, I want to respect that the poet, whether the poet's myself or my student or another poet, wants that. And so how, how can I help them? How can I help myself do something formally, for instance, or um, using a mask, a persona poem, the all the poems, uh, the ecrasic poems that are um, in the eye like a strange balloon. Um, I'm standing behind a painting and letting that painting be the mask. So all of these are techniques. It's interesting, though, to, because in some ways... Because it's a way of saying something that you want to say. Exactly. To, to, exactly. to be honest, as honest, as truthful as you can be. Absolutely. As earnest as you can be. Yes. And people will take it in. That's right. But sometimes you have to stand behind um, a false face. You know, you have to stand behind, you have to dress up as um, Alice in Wonderland and go on stage, um, you know, carry a painting and, and stand behind it and speak from the middle of the stage. Well, thank you, Mary Jo, for being on Living Writers today. This, well, it was a pleasure. This has been a, a wonderful hour. Um, and so just to, to recap here, folks, um, there's many books that you can go out and take a look at from Mary Jo Bang. Um, let's see. We'll start with Apology for Want, uh, Louise in Love, The Downstream Extremity of the Isle of Swans. I love that title, The Eye Like a Strange Balloon. And most recently from Grey Wolf Press, Elegy. Um, thanks again, Mary Jo, for being here. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks, Alex Bellhodge, Corey, for engineering. Um, please join us again next Wednesday. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. I need a camera to my eyes. The Daily Sports Report. Now Conkle sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball swing and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Howell doing everything he can here to keep the game alive for his team. Eric Feldkamp still working off the stretch. Yeah, so since he came on. Jeff Gunkel flashes out the sign, setting up outside. 2-2 pitch, swing, and a miss. He struck him out, and the ball game is over. Derek Feldkamp strikes out Jacob Howell on a 2-2 curveball. The Buckeyes are retired in the ninth. They leave two on. The final score here at Ray Fisher Stadium, the first ever night game played at the Fish, Michigan 11 at Ohio State 3. We would start out with a uh, Steve Schuster baseball highlight, given that 
there's not really much else going on in Michigan athletics aside from the baseball team, which is in action today against Notre Dame for a twin bill in South Bend. Welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Jeremy Rushi and Bill on the other side of the glass. And guys, why don't we get things started by talking Michigan basketball?